If you'd like to take a seat, hopefully the building won't fall down. <laughs> um, this evening's reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, verses 1 to 17, which can be found on page 310 in the Red Bibles. We do have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and the page numbers of those should be on the screen behind me. Samuel chapter 7 starting at verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, who I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off from all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Ross, thank you very much for reading that. As Paul said, this is one of the high points, one of the great passages uh, of the Bible. Um, So why don't we pray as we come to look at it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great promises in your words. And as we come to look at this one tonight, uh, help us to know it, understand it, believe it, and trust it, um, so that we may give you glory. Amen. As I say, this is one of those uh, high points, great promises um, that come about. And I wonder if we come to it, uh, if we're then sort of slightly drawn let me explain what I mean. Uh, I wonder if in our culture there's this kind of uh, 
developed this air of mistrust uh, around promises uh, and people. You know, you, you have the celebrities on the one hand who say they're innocent, uh, and yet revelations about their private lives come out again and again. You've got Brexit. I mean, where do you begin with that one? All the promises that were made on both sides. Uh, and and how, how do you get there? Media, they come and spin things. Uh, and, you yeah, know, let's be honest, do we even keep all our promises? Uh, and the problem is that uh, we start thinking, well, what are promises all about? And yet, in our society, there are also promises that are still true. And we trust them without even thinking about them. Take this, for example. A five-pound note. This bit of paper, it's not paper, is it, anymore? It's some sort of special synthetic material, but whatever it is. Uh, This bit of paper contains a promise that we just all accept without even thinking about it. It, it, This bit of paper is worthless. Apparently, um, it costs the Bank of England 7p to make a five-pound note. But yet we take it and we treat it as though it is five pounds. And it's all because of the promise that's written on it. I don't know if you spotted um, these. It's quite small writing, but it says, I promise to pay the bearer on demand the sum of five pounds. And so we take this, and because the Bank of England made that promise on it, we trust the promise without even thinking. Because we know the ones who's made the promise is reliable, they're able to deliver, so it's accepted. Everyone believes it. And what I want to say is, over the next two weeks, as we look at this grace promise of Scripture, I want to see that it's a promise like a five-pound note. It's a promise that can be trusted because the one who's made it is able to deliver it. He will establish it. He's utterly dependent See, we're going to spend tonight looking at the promise itself and who establishes it. Next week, we're going to come back again and we're going to see how this promise sweeps across the whole Bible. From Abraham through David, through Jesus to the new creation. All one great promise. Uh, And after next week's service, we'll have a QA and a session um, over food. So if you've got questions, do keep them in mind. But it's a huge promise that makes massive ripples, not ripples, waves through the the Bible, it's not the type of promise that we have in our society a lot of the time. And if you think about money, the impact that that had when it came in on our nation, that's nothing in comparison to the impact of this promise, which uh, still affects us today. So it's a promise for us to be, it's a good promise for us to hear again and again and again. Now, of course, um, as we've read, firstly, it's a promise to David. It's what's often called the Davidic Covenant. Uh, we have been charting David's rise to a king, to become king. It's taken a long time from that, that shepherd boy who was anointed to finally become king of Israel. But that is where he is. Uh, a few chapters ago, we saw that he got placed there as king of all Israel. And things have been going well for him. Actually, chronologically, chapter 8 becomes before chapter 7. Um, and so he's already won many battles. He's brought the, the ark of, the God, of God into his capital city, that very representation, representation of God. He has, he has made it as the king. 
Now, of course, it's actually God who's done all this. The, the writer doesn't want to forget that. So you see that there in verse 1. It's the Lord that's given him rest. But it seems like, as you get to this point, David um, has made it. He's relaxing one evening in his luxurious palace he's built, his friend Nathan by his side, rest all around. Uh, and as he's sitting there, this thought comes to his, his mind. Look at verse 2. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here am I, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. That's a logical thing to say, isn't it? You know, uh, Nathan seems to think so too, if you read, uh, read verse 3. It's kind of been the icing on the cake of David's achievements. He's got this nice house, then God deserves somewhere good to dwell in as well. And yet God, as we'll see, has other ideas. You see, to the, to the world around him, it might look like David's made it. But God has bigger and better plans. He hasn't finished with David yet. And so comes this amazing promise. Given firstly to Nathan, he then reports it uh, to David. It's, it's one of the great promises. Um, promise is, it, it, as I said, it flows throughout the Bible as a promise singular. And so it's important that we take the time uh, to look at what it is. So what does uh, God have to say in this promise? Well, firstly, he's saying God will establish his house. Look at verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? Now, the answer to that question is supposed to become quite obvious. The answer is no, you're not going to be the one, David. I've not asked you to build a house for me. Uh, now, having said that, I don't think at this point we're supposed to be being hard on David. You know, it seems a logical thing for David to be thinking and asking. Now, maybe he should have built God's house before he built his own palace. You can debate that. But given the way that the writer has been portraying David up until this point... Uh, I don't think he's coming down uh, hard on David. In fact, I don't think this is really much about David at all. It's about God. It's about God who will establish this stuff through David. God who will establish his promise. And, and you see that in verse 13, where uh, God says a house will be built, but it's going to be by David's son, Solomon. It's God who determines when these things are going to happen, not David. In the same way, he's been in charge of the whole process. I'm sure David wouldn't have chosen to go from shepherd boy to king through being chased around, um, having to become king of parcel country, having big battles and before making it. God has been the one who's led his chosen king to where he's meant to be. In fact, verse 6 and 7 is a, is a great reminder of the awesome things that God has done for his people, how he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out uh, through the plagues, through the Red Sea, um, and through the wandering in the desert. He's been with them that whole time and led them to this promised land that they're now in. Wherever they've gone, he's been with them, God dwelling with his people. And that's not going to change. In fact, it hasn't changed. See, this is the way that God is going to build his house. A house, as I say, uh, the temple is initially built by David's son. That, uh, and as the ark, that representation of God, is brought into the temple in 2 Kings chapter 8, it's one of the highest points of Israel's history. You can read about it later. 
And in front of that whole assembly, Solomon actually reminds them of this promise that we're reading tonight. It's fulfilled as the temple is completed and opened. God has this permanent dwelling in the middle of his people. And yet, even with that initial fulfillment that Solomon sees, he knows that God isn't limited in that way. It says in 1 Kings chapter 8, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. See, there, Solomon's right. The temple was spectacular. It represented God dwelling right in the middle of his people. But it was never going to contain him. God always had a plan to establish a different kind of house. One that the temple was just a foreshadowing of. And God is still establishing that house. See, it's not about buildings, which is a good thing given our building is currently falling to pieces. Um, you know, we have to keep repairing them. Um, it's about people. The house that God is building is his people. You and me. As we're Christians, we are God's temple. I read a stats this week that said, uh, in 1900, one in 28 people on planet Earth professed to be Christians. Today, is one in four. Now, how you measure something like that, I don't know. But even if you take some uh, flexibility in that, that is huge growth. One in 28 to one in four worldwide. And I know we don't always seem to see that in this country. But elsewhere in the world, the gospel is still spreading like wildfire. God is still building his house. He's still establishing uh, his house. And as people are brought in to know Jesus, they are brought into this promise. As we are sealed with the Holy Spirit that God gives us, we become part of his house and we are established. And he continues to establish his house. This promise keeps going. So God will establish his house, and God will establish a place for his people. Uh, Again, as we come to verse 8, it's God reminding David of things he's done. Uh, This time, going specifically to David himself, if you look at verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. You see, it's again, God is with. First Israel, and now with David. And look where God has taken him. I don't know if you remember back to the uh, Oscars uh, last week. Uh, they were all talking about Olivia Coleman's great triumph. And this one, the headlines that I saw. Uh, from cleaner to queen of Hollywood. You know, that's an amazing achievement, isn't it? Uh, what what she's done. I have not seen a film. I'm guessing it's okay. It won an Oscar. I don't know. You can judge if that makes it good or not. Um, But we don't love those stories of people who've gone from nothing to fame. Now, imagine the headlines uh, at this time in about 1000 BC. David, shepherd boy to king of Israel. That's a meteoric, meteoric rise 
to faith. And here, God reminds David that it's him who's done it. He's achieved that for him. And because he's done that, he'll achieve the rest of this promise for him too. It's what makes this promise so sure. It's made by God who's utterly trustworthy, who cannot lie. The promise will come true. He's shown what he has done. Now he's shown what he will do. In verse 9, second half of verse 9, Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And yeah, in many ways, we know that's true. You know, we're still reading about David today. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, great name. You know, actually, I think if you went out and um, asked people about the Bible, a lot of them would come back with something like Psalm 23, which was written by David. He's famous in that way. But there's more to it than that. Because his name was added to the greatest name. 17 times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. David's name gets associated with the greatest man who ever lived. In fact, Jesus is given that name because of this chapter. Talking about having a great name. Jesus, son of David. And yet there's still more to this promise as God keeps going. Verse 10, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people shall not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done, uh, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over you, my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies." You know, the writer has already said that David is at rest in verse 1, but there's a greater rest still yet to come. David does have battles to face, but one day even those will be removed. Can you see here that God is creating this permanent place for his people, a place of safety and security through this great name? It's an amazing picture. Actually, it's one that... Uh, Christians and uh, actually Old Testament Israel as well came back to again and again and again. So people were uh, in exile in the Old Testament. They come back to this promise. It's through that son of David, that greater son, great David's greater son, that this place is coming for us too. Through that great name. See, when Jesus comes again, He will establish a place for his people that is of total safety and security. It will give us the greatest experience of rest we can ever imagine. And just as the prophets called the Old Testament readers when they were in exile, back to this promise to give them that hope. So when we feel unsettled in this time of exile, so we, we keep coming back to this promise of hope. You know, we don't see it all yet. Of course we don't. God's been patient. He's establishing his house. But one day this heavenly place will come. It will be fully established. The promise is still ongoing. And not only is it a house of people and a place for people, but God will establish an everlasting kingdom. That's where this promise goes. If we look at the second half of verse 11. 
the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. It's a clever play on words uh, that God uses. He turns the idea of David building a house back on David, saying God's going to build him a house, a dynasty. See that carrying on if we look through verse 12. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will rise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I guess when David hears this, the excitement of that kind of promise far outweighs the disappointment of not building a house for the Lord. It's a kingdom that's going to go on forever. We remember some of the great names of history, don't we? Like Julius Caesar, uh, Cleopatra, Alexander the Great, whoever they are. We remember their names, but none of them have a dynasty that's still going on today. Their kingdoms ended when they ended, but not David's. See, his kingdom is permanent because it's a permanence that comes between God and his king. Look at verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. See, here as we uh, have had to do a few times this chapter, you kind of have to zoom in and zoom out. If we zoom in and look at the kind of immediate fulfillment uh, of this, Um, It's in the Old Testament kings who are often called the son of God, small s. As we've seen, it's a promise to David's offspring. It's uh, fulfilled partly in Solomon as he builds a temple, but God goes on blessing uh, the family. Uh, And yet, those offspring also do wrong, and so have to be punished, as verse 14 says. In fact, we don't even have to get as far as the offspring uh, to see that. David himself is going to fail spectacularly. Um, when you get to the second half of 2 Samuel. Uh, and then you receive the punishment of a father. But notice it's not the punishment of rejection that came on Saul. It's the punishment of a father's loving discipline. And as you track through the Old Testament, you see that. Kings fail, and they are disciplined by their father gods. And yet there's always a remnant left a stump of Jesse, a line of David, who receive God's steadfast love. It's there in verse 15, but my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In verse 16 there, if David's in any doubt, here's a great summary. Your, that's you, David, your house, your kingdom, your throne, that great dynasty, forever, it's repeated twice, forever is going to be established. It has that sense of utter reliability and stability. God is going to do this. It's the five pound note promise. See, as we zoom out, we see that ultimate father-son relationship and where this ultimately fails, that mutual steadfast love that, that points to the Son of God, capital S, the one whom the Father sent saying, this is my Son whom I love. See, Jesus is both uh, the Son of God and the Son of David. 
He is human. He is divine. And all God's promises are fulfilled in him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God's. See, here's that final father-son relationship that means this kingdom, this place, this house can go on forever because there's someone who has the right and the ability to rule. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. It can only be Jesus, God's chosen king. He died, he rose again, he ascended to heaven, he's seated, seated at the right hand of God's. On his throne, the kingdom has begun. One day we'll see it fully. But if we're ever in any doubts that, these, that this promise is still going on, that God is still establishing this promise, if that distrust of society has sometimes warped how we think about God's promises, then come back to 2 Samuel 7. God writes across history in these verses that he has established a people. He is establishing a place. He's established his king. And one day that's going to happen. And we will see it fully. And nothing is going to stop it. He's done those things for his people in the past. He will do it far bigger and far more glorious for us. You see, you might like to think later, in, in what ways does this great promise of God give us confidence in our faith now? Because it does. It's like God's contract to us, like that note has a, a promise. It's, an, it's a promise that lasts far beyond actually the promise of money is going to last. It's like God says to us, I promise to give the bearer of my Holy Spirit a permanent place in the kingdom of my son, my beloved chosen eternal king. It's right here. In 2 Samuel 7, it was given to David, but it keeps going for us. I promise to give the bearer of my Holy Spirit a permanent place in the kingdom of my son, my beloved, chosen, eternal king. What a great promise. What a great God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises of your words. We thank you that they are true, trustworthy, and we know they will come about. And so, Lord, give us confidence in this promise tonight. May it affect the way that we see you as the true, certain promise deliverer, because you are establishing your promises. Lord, your track record proves that this is going to come true. So may we never doubt it. Amen.